Well, the past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and so as Jeremy said, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We'll be in chapter 5 today, but let me give you just a quick overview again. I know if you've been here, you've heard this before, but it's really good to understand the context of a writing or a letter or a book, and if we don't understand the context, then we can miss the actual meaning that is implied and inferred there uh, that we can get from and give to, and so what we've seen from Paul is a man who has been radically changed and saved by God. He understood that Christ was resurrected, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, coming down to bring salvation to mankind. And so the rest of his life was lived to teach and to tell of this one who is Jesus Christ. So he would go around from city to city, place to place, and he would teach about Jesus. And he would spend some time in other cities and more time in, in specific ones. And this is a city... Ephesus in which he spent three years. He spent three years living with these people, trying to teach these people, tell them about who Christ was and that he was the true Messiah and Savior they had been looking and hoping for. And so Paul wrote this letter, as he does a lot of his letters, in two sections. He writes the first in a, in a section called, that we call theology and doctrine, which is understanding or knowing who God is, knowing about the world and about sin and about ourselves. It's the intellectual understanding of, of those things. And then what Paul does, which I love about Paul, is because he doesn't leave us in this intellectual realm of, oh, I know all of these things. And it's great that I have this understanding, but what am I supposed to do with what I now know? You've been in those classes, right? You've been in biology or economics, and you're like, great, I might get half of this. I don't know how it applies to my life. I don't know what to do with this. It's great that there's this information, but what Paul does is he gives us this valuable information and then tells us what we're supposed to do with it. In the last half of his letter, he helps us apply this to our lives. And so Paul has been going through trying to help us understand who Jesus is and then how to live according to the law and the word and the principles of God, specifically through our relationship and our new life in Jesus Christ. And so last week, he tackled some specific behaviors. And there's a, a delicate balance there that we really focused on at the end that you can get caught up in church in focusing on changing behavior. And you know as a parent, you can try to change behavior, but if you don't capture the heart, the behavior is just a band-aid. Or the behavior is really just manipulation as they become older teens. They learn the behavior that you're expecting so they can get what they really want. And what you wanted is that their heart would be changed, but really all they're doing is playing a game until they can get out of your sight or out of your house. And so Paul talks about these behaviors that they should be evident in our lives, but not so that we can just, uh, just tell God, hey, we've done the right thing, or so that we can show other people we're a nice person. But he goes at it a different way, that it's not just changing or becoming better at a couple of behaviors. It's this total change and total transformation. And he gave us a few examples where the liar doesn't just lie less, but he becomes a truth teller. A complete change of heart that he doesn't want to tell lies anymore. He doesn't want to be known as someone who, who shapes and forms these lies to get around the truth to get what they want. But this person that the truth actually just exudes out of them, just flows out of them. And then he gives us the example of the thief who was dishonest and would take from everybody. And this man had been changed and totally transformed by Christ in a way that he didn't just steal less, but he actually became a hardworking, normal, everyday citizen for the purpose of being generous to other people. So this man who used to take from people, now he's working a day's, uh, day's hourly wage so that he can give that to other people and be generous because this is the work that Christ has done in his heart. And so Paul's not after us just changing our behavior. Paul is after Jesus filling us and indwelling in us, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us so much so that who we used to be is not who we are today. 
that the longer we spend with God, the longer we spend in his word, the more we allow the spirit to influence our lives, the more we look like a completely different person. And that's the transformative work that Jesus does in our lives. And that's why Paul spent all of his life telling people about this Jesus, that he doesn't just make your life better, he makes your life completely different. He makes it new where it was dead and where it was old. And so the work that has to happen, Paul said, is in our minds and in our hearts. We can't just change the outward appearance, that our heart has to desire something different. It has to long for something different, that our minds have to be renewed, they have to be changed. The way we think has to be completely changed. And I don't know if you've ever experienced, and you probably have, one of those paradigm shifting moments where you saw the world differently. You had a different perspective on life and everything you thought you knew was incorrect and everything and all this world that you have seen now is so different than the way you used to think. And Paul says this is exactly what Jesus does. This is what the word of God does is it begins to transform and change your heart and your mind that you become a new and a renewed person. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to continue down that path and he's going to kind of encapsulate this, this whole for us that we're not just to have a few things changed, that we're not just to be transformed in a few ways, but so much so that he says in the very first verse of chapter 5 that we should be imitators of God, that we should pattern and model our lives after, that what dad does, the little kid starts to follow. You know when your kids get to be about four or five, they become mini-me to dad, you know, they start dressing like and acting like and looking like and carrying the little tools because dad's got the big tools because they want to imitate their father. They want to be like dad. And Paul says your life should be changed so much so because of what Christ has done and the spirit is doing in your life that this transformation is so holistic that you are imitating your Father who is in heaven. And so that's where he's headed to, and that's where he's going. He's going to tell us a few areas that should not be consistently present in our lives if this transformation is taking place. And if we are imitating our Father, then these things should not be present. But before we get there, because all of this section could be taken out of context. It could be taken as condemnation when it actually is just shaping and discipling and training and correcting. And so what you have to know, what we have to know, is that this walking toward imitating God is a long process. It is a journey that we know that's called sanctification. That's all that word means. I know it's big. You may be confused by it. But it simply means going from a place of immaturity to over time to a place of maturity in God. It's just like we grow physically. You go from being a small child to being an older adult that physically your body is growing and hopefully your emotional state is changing and growing to maturity as well. And so Paul is talking about this idea that we as people of God, we are going through this process, this journey of transformation. But what he also wants us to know and what we know clearly from scripture and very clearly in our own hearts and lives is that there's an ebb and a flow to this. There's an up and a down. There are seasons when you're walking faithfully with God and seasons when you're walking selfishly for me. There are those days, those weeks, those months, those seasons where you're just kind of stuck. We call it in a rut, backsliding, whatever you want to say. They're just those moments where we're not faithfully following God and imitating our Father like we should. And that's, in a sense, okay as long as the trajectory of growth in our lives and maturity is moving up and toward the place of learning to imitate God over time. So God changes our heart in the sense of giving us a new heart and saving us in a moment, but he changes all of our actions, behaviors, attitudes 
over the course of time. As we walk with him and learn what is right in his sight and according to his will and according to his purpose. And so what happens is we misunderstand this idea of, of transformation. We, we think it has to happen overnight. And part of it does, but the rest of it takes forever. But here's what's difficult. For this transformation to take place, what Paul's going to tell us and show us is that things in our hearts have to be exposed into the light. And not just parts of them, every area of our life, the darkness that is inside of our hearts has to be exposed and brought to the light. And there's one other way. It's what I call the dirty little secret. There's a dirty little secret to exposing things into the light. And it is completely misunderstood. And we'll get there in just a moment. It's one word. You probably already know it but it's one word. And that's not uncommon. There are all kinds of words and all kinds of phrases and principles that we misunderstood, that we misconstrued. And, and look, we get it being from the South, right? We're misunderstood all the time. People think we marry our cousins. Well, at least we don't anymore. <laughs> they think we don't wear shoes. We only do in public, right? As soon as we get home, the shoes go off, the comfy clothes go on. We get accused of not being able to drive in the snow. We get accused them for not winning national championships. Goes both ways. And, and here's the one that's actually true. We, we get misunderstood and we get accused of not using proper language and grammar. Right? And two versus two, saw versus seen, did versus done, lose versus lose. I, come on, people. <laughs> You didn't done that, you did that. You didn't seen that, you saw it, right? I mean, that, that's just, but growing up in the South, in this culture, in this context, sometimes we have a difficult time with grammar and language and, and words, but it's not uncommon. I mean, it's, if you look up the, the most common misunderstood words, you'll, you'll find a whole litany, a whole list of, of these types of words. Let me give you some so that you feel a little bit better about, you know, two and two and seen and saw and all those types of things. So here's one that, that we struggle with, except versus Accept. So the A, accept, means to receive something willingly. And accept with the E is, is really to kind of exclude something, right? So those are different. Those are different ideas. The other, other two that we have trouble with, and this is probably the one we have trouble with a lot, most of us. Affect versus effect. Affect means to influence something, to have influence over something. And effect means to accomplish something. You're like, wow, I didn't, you came to church today and you learned something, right? Call your third grade English teacher and go, you got to come to church with me. <laughs> so the next, one, the next one is ironic versus coincidental. Now, we misuse these all the time. We, we misuse them. Even the one who wrote the song misused it in the song. Ironic is this reversal of, of what's expected, and coincidence is something that happens by chance. So here's, here's an idea for you. So if you're planning to go on a ski trip and you break your leg before the day before the ski trip, that's coincidental. However, if you drive up to the mountain to go skiing and you discover when you get to the mountain that there was more snow back at your house than there is at the mountain, that's ironic, okay? So here's, here's the next one. The next set of words that we struggle with is imply versus infer, okay? So if you imply something, you're trying to tell someone or suggest something to someone, if you infer you're the one that's hearing that and you're, you're discovering or you're deciding for yourself what the person who's writing or speaking that is trying to say to you. 
And the last one I'll, I'll show you, we'll quit the English lesson, is comprise versus compose. And so comprise just means to include, and compose means to make up. And so there are all kinds of words that we struggle with, that we have a difficult time understanding what the true meaning of it is. But there's one word in all of the Christian language, in all the Christian verbiage, that everyone at some point in time, and especially those who I would say are outside of the faith, and if you're outside of the faith today, you're always welcome here, always. And the reason we teach the way we do and the reason we love people the way we do is because we understand this whole deal is a process. Coming to know who God is and have faith in God is a process. And we're not going to lay on you or lambast on you or beat you over the head because you just simply still have questions. Your questions are good and valid and we want you to ask them and we want to help you walk through and discover the answers to those questions. But there's one word I would say categorically and consistently across the board that we completely misunderstand or misconstrue or simply just don't even want to talk about. And it's the dirty little word that starts with an S. Anybody have a guess? Submission. We don't like it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to hear it. Because the whole reason we needed God was because we didn't want to submit to anybody. God included. We didn't want anybody to have authority over us. We didn't want anybody to tell us what to do. We didn't want anybody in our lives, who are you to tell me? You live your life, I'll live mine, and everybody will live at peace, when logically, that can never work out. If I live my life how I want, by the flesh, by the nature, I'm going to come get your stuff, and you're not going to be at peace anymore. But none of us want to live in submission. And so I just want to lay that groundwork before we get there because that word submission is actually at the very end of where we're headed. But it's all a part of the process and the journey that we'll get to at the very end. So first couple of verses of chapter 5, this is what Paul says. Therefore be imitators, that's that word we talked about, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says as a believer, once you've trusted God, then you're to become Uh, an imitator of him in every single way and he should interact with you and he should change you and he should shape you so that every part of your life every area of your life how you think how you act how you behave even your conduct should be changing over time and we don't do this to earn the acceptance and the favor of God we do this because he's already accepted us as his children As we said, four- and five-year-old little boys especially love to look like dad. And four- and five-year-old little girls love to get up on a stool and put on an apron and try to cook with mom because we naturally just want to be like our parents. We want to be like our mom. We want to be like our dad. And Paul says, this is how we live our lives now that we've trusted in him. That we, we live to imitate him, not so that he will love us, but because we already have a relationship with him and we see him as a good, loving, caring father and we want our lives to look just like and be modeled and patterned after his life as well. And so in doing so, Paul's going to give us a couple of instructions to live a holy life in the next couple of verses. So starting in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. They're not in the right place for a believer. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, this is difficult, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, which all of us have been, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
First two verses, three and four, we get it. We understand. We're not supposed to think this way or talk this way or act this way. Verse five is a hard pill to swallow. Because you think, well, I've been a believer. I've trusted in God and I have coveted. I know I have. So does that mean I lose my place in my relationship with God? Does that mean dad kicks me out of the house? Because you could read that, that verse by itself. That verse even in this section and say, well, that's what it means. That if I commit one sin, God's kicking me out. That's why you have denominations and religions who feel like they have to get resaved every time they make a mistake. Which for us dilutes the power of Christ and the blood on the cross. Because he's able to, to look over, which means to, to destroy sins. Former, past, present, and future. But what Paul is saying here is not that if you covet or you commit idolatry or that you talk foolishly as a believer, that you're going to be kicked out of the kingdom of God. What Paul is talking about is habitual sin. This, this pattern of sin in our lives that's consistent. Remember we said, this is a process, and there are going to be seasons where you struggle and fail and falter. And you're going to feel like you're back in your old life, but if you look at the, the course of your time with God, hopefully that trajectory, as we said, is growing toward maturity. And so what Paul is saying is that if Christ has come in and transformed your heart and the, and your, and the way he does, if he's truly changed your heart and your mind, then you as a believer cannot find peace or rest when you're living in these sins. And therefore you won't receive that inheritance, that freedom, that peace, that love, that joy. You won't know it. That you cannot live there because you're going to have this conviction in your heart. That, that pulls you and draws you to a relationship with your father. And if that's not there, that too in itself may be evidence that Christ truly hasn't changed your heart and your life. And so Paul continues in verses 6 through 7, kind of emphasizing what he just said. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So he says, don't let one, someone fool you and trick you. Don't let somebody tell you, look, you can have Jesus and you can have your sin. As we said last week, you can't say 20 years after following God, Jesus loves this hot mess and that hot mess never changed a bit. He says, don't let anybody fool you because they will. They will twist scripture and it will sound so good and so right because it feels good to you. That look, I can still do these things and Jesus still loves me. He loved you enough so that those things would not be present in your life over the course of transformation and sanctification. And then what he does is he attaches this, which seems odd. He attaches this little section at the end of that. And don't become partners with those people who do. Don't read them. Don't run with them. Don't give them influence over your life because Paul knows that those whom we choose to associate ourselves with will have direct and decisive influence over the way we live our lives. And Paul's not alone. He is absolutely not alone. If you look in the ESV study Bible, this is, this is what it says. A common deception throughout church history, throughout all of our time as believers, has been the notion that professing Christians can lead unrepentant, sinful lives after conversion to Christ and not suffer the consequences. You say, wow, God's just mean. The whole purpose he disciplines us is to bring about correction in our lives so that we can experience that true and full inheritance. So that we can know and live in that joy and that peace. 
And so Paul includes this warning to, to not be around those who, who live this way, who think this way, or who teach this way. Because they have that influence over our lives. And they will change, they will renew our thinking in an improper way and not in a way that is godly or holy. And so he's not alone in that as well. This, these are sayings you've heard before that says this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It's absolutely true. If you've lived life long enough, you can go back and look and you can see that happen time and time again in your life. There's another famous pastor who says this, your friends determine the quality and direction of your life. Who you choose to associate with, who you choose to live with, to walk with, to have influence over you will directly determine your course of action. It is a fact and you are not special and you are not different. It happens every single time. And I have said for years, I've never done it, but I have a theory. I would love to have done it, and it's happened in other ways because there's this new phenomenon called the influencers. Wherever you go, if you get the influencer, you get everybody else. I said for years, I would love to sell a couple, about 10 high school students who are the influencers in their school. I would love to sell them on the idea that if you wear bowling shoes for 10 weeks, everybody else is going to start wearing them as well. To school, to play ball in, everywhere you go. I'll give you 50 bucks to wear them for 10 weeks. And then I'll set up shop outside the school and I'll sell bowling shoes for 100 bucks a piece. <laughs> because who you, who you run with, who you associate yourself with, will have great impact on your life. And, and the greatest man outside of Jesus, especially the wisest man who ever lived, named Solomon, said the very same thing. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. He says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Is if you choose to run with people who think this way, look, girl, you can have whatever you want, and Jesus is still going to love you. Man, you, you, can, you can just treat your wife however you want. It's okay, you're a Christian. Just ask for forgiveness and move on. Paul says there's this change, this transformation in your life that you can't be at peace. You can't find rest if you're not living according to the will and the word of God. There's going to be something unsettled in you that you just can't live with. And that's the Holy Spirit working inside of you to bring about change and transformation. Because that's what, that's the, what's what Jesus does. He changes your life completely. Paul talks about it in the next couple of verses that are a little bit long, so stay with me and then we'll come back. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. I love that. You were not in darkness, but you yourself were darkness. You, you were attached to it and tied to it. But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. For, at one, for, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, we're going to come back to this part, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when something is exposed in the light and to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible, again, doesn't just kind of change to or become, but is light itself. Paul says those things that you used to be a part of, you, you were darkness. Th those things that you were in sin before Christ, you had darkness on you. You had destruction and the wrath of God was coming for those who lived in that type of disobedience. And this isn't just the world's sins, this is our sin. These are the things that are in our heart, not just the evil things that are out there that somebody else is doing or struggling with, but this is in our heart. And even in this, Paul reveals a process. That for these things to start to change, that darkness in your heart that you know exists that nobody else does, that you struggle with, that you lay awake sometimes in that deep, dark night of the soul, 
and you know you can't overcome it or you're been, you've been struggling with it, as long as it stays in the dark, it'll destroy you. As long as it stays isolated, it will ruin you. As long as it stays covered and hidden, there will be no transformation and there will be no change. So Paul reveals a process that says you have to expose it to the light. And the light is the truth of God. It has to come out of the darkness and into the light. And when it comes out into the light, it's not hidden anymore. Then it can be exposed to that truth. And then people can see it and you can see it. And when that happens, there's urgency. There's this sense of desire and confession I have spoken or I have brought out into the light or I have revealed to someone this darkness that is me or inside of me. And when that happens, it over time leads to repentance, which says, I don't want this anymore. I don't desire this anymore. And I am turning, literally turning my back on that thing that I used to keep hidden. And that repentance brings about transformation, sanctification over time which, watch this, leads to holiness. And that darkness now becomes light. And that's not easy to do for most of us. Because especially as men, we think, if I can just hold on to it, if I can just hide it, I'll fix it, and then I'll reveal it. 99.9999 times out of 100. It doesn't work. The more and the longer you keep it hidden the more it will destroy you and trick you and fool you to the point where you don't think you could ever expose it to the light. Because what will people think? And I'm too far to the point that it cannot be fixed. So Paul says we have to expose those things. We have to bring them out of the light. And when we bring it to the light and other people see it and we acknowledge it, then we have this sense of something has to be done with it. And then that is the place that repentance and transformation and change can occur. And that darkness is exchanged for light. So Paul continues in the next couple of verses that may seem out of place, but really helps us with how we live our daily lives. Verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk. This is how you live your life, not as unwise, but as wise. Therefore, do not, uh, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he says, be careful, make the most of this time. Don't think, I'm going to do it later, I'll take care of it tomorrow. But this is the day, this is the time that God has given you, that the Holy Spirit is in you, that Christ is changing you, renewing your heart and your mind. Don't walk in foolishly, but know that this is how you as a believer now are supposed to live, to bring these things out into the light to allow people to change you because as you walk your days and walk your life people know you've claimed to be a believer but your life has not been changed and transformed he says be careful don't be foolish you're not fooling anybody but take the moment seize the moment to live a holy godly life and the only way you can do that is for those things that are dark to be exposed to the light and for that confession and repentance to take place so that transformation can occur so that you can live rightly in this moment. And then there's another section that can be taken out of context as well, but we'll get to the purpose of it at the end. Verse 18 through 20, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then he goes to the next verse, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, that seems like two things. One, out of place. And two, Paul just trying to change our behavior. Now, Paul, yes, absolutely, is teaching that being drunk is debauchery, a sin, transgression, basically against the will of God. That is very clear in Scripture. And I'm not trying to say that that's not what he's meaning here. It's absolutely what he's meaning here. But don't miss the greater context because of what all that Paul has been talking about, how he's been trying to teach us to imitate for our lives to be transformed. That doesn't happen just by getting better at specific behaviors. That happens, as we have said, that our lives begin to imitate that our hearts and our minds have been changed, that we learn to desire the things of God instead of the things of ourselves or the things of the world. So Paul doesn't say, just don't get drunk with wine, but just like he did with the liar becoming a truth teller. He says, instead of being controlled by wine or alcohol, instead be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. Because that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that comes out of our lives being lived with God. The longer we live with Him, the more we look like Him, and the more our lives are in control. We have self-control, not because we did it, but because the Spirit is daily, continually filling us. And as He fills us, He begins to change our desires, which change our behaviors and our conduct. And then we're controlled by the Spirit. Now, I I got cheesy last week. I'm going to have to get cheesy again, right? And so it's the idea of like, so he says, sing songs of thanksgiving. What do people do when they're controlled by spirits? They're joyful and gleeful and they sing songs, right? That just just changes their behavior. He says, instead, be controlled by the spirit. That you're singing songs not because this other element is controlling you, but because you're so filled with God that you have joy in and peace, the inheritance that he promised, you're receiving it and you're living in it. And so he says, through this process, the whole goal is for the Spirit to infill you and indwell you so much so that your life is transformed and changed as these dark things are brought into the light. And as they're brought into the light, that sanctification happens so that you're not controlled by yourself or desires, but you're controlled by God and the Spirit. And then he gives us one more way. This last thing, this one word that is misunderstood. I think one of the greatest ways that this process of exposing from dark to light takes place in our lives, and it's through that one word, submission. So he ends with this in verse 21. And this verse is kind of a transition between what we're talking about today and what we'll talk about next time we address Ephesians. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think one of the main ways we can learn to become an imitator of God is to submit to someone else. And this doesn't mean we open ourselves up and let anybody have free reign on ourselves. As I've said, I don't think everyone should have influence over your life, but I think someone should. There has to be some type of vulnerability and accountability. And it's not open for the whole world to see. You don't throw out your problems and, and, and your struggles and your issues on social media for everybody to look at. But you find somebody or somebodies in your life that will help bring those dark things to light, that will expose those things in you. Because look, I can't see everything in me. It took me 20 years to see the pride that I struggle with daily. 20 years. You know one of my aunts saw it in me when I was nine years old? 
She didn't like me very much. And my parents couldn't understand why. But I get it. I completely understand. I was prideful. I tell people all the time, my, my family, the four of us, we have a saying. Our struggle is we think we're always right. And we follow it up with because we're usually always right. <laughs> but it took me 20 years. It took the Spirit 20 years to work that out of me and still daily working that out of me. But if I had somebody else who had opened myself up to other people to say, look, this is darkness in your life. Can I help expose it? And if I can help expose it, then maybe you come to a place of repentance with this openness and turning away from and letting the Spirit fill you so that that pride doesn't fill you anymore. Because being controlled by the Spirit is talking about not being controlled by not just alcohol, but anything and everything. Anything can control your life. And so Paul says instead of those things, instead of shopping and relationships and job and performance and pride and anger controlling you, you should learn to be controlled by the Spirit, but that takes time. And it doesn't just take time, it takes people. It takes somebody else in your life saying, look, I love you, and I love you enough to tell you that's darkness in you. And that's not, that's not to be for a believer. That's not who we are. That's not how we imitate God. And so you and I have to get to this place where we submit ourselves to a few people we trust and say, I, I know I don't have it all together. There are dark things in me that I've tried to work through and overcome for a long time. And I've understood and realized now that I can't do it in isolation. I can't do it in hiding. And look, get this, even when you do expose those things and submit to other people, it's not going to be fixed tomorrow. You may struggle with it for the rest of your life on this planet. But you at least have someone there to call you out, challenge you, exhort you, and love you in those difficult moments. And I believe this fully with all of my heart. From the day you expose those things and submit to another person in your life to the day you die, even with the ebbs and flows, I will guarantee you, if you're earnest about it, you will be more mature in that area than you ever were before. And submission is not a dirty word. We think it is. Sometimes we misuse it and we misunderstand it. But submission is just going to another friend who's a believer that says, I can't see everything in me. And I want to be like that. I want to be transformed. I want to be an imitator of God. I want to look like him. I want to walk like him and talk like him. And I need your help to get me there, to expose the things, to bring them to light so that they can move from darkness to light in my life. Got it? Good. Submission is not a bad thing. It's one of the most helpful things God has given us in relationship with one another that brings about the transformation that he desires and we truly desire as well. Let me pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us understand submission correctly, that we, have, we know we have, we have pushed it to the side because we think it's too hard or it's too difficult or it doesn't make sense or it, it seems judgmental and, and who is someone to tell me what to do or how to live? But God, we know that you created us to be in relationship with you and also with one another and we need each other to expose those things of darkness because if, if we truly are a believer and we cannot rest or find peace in that struggling, habitual sin, then we need a friend, we need a brother, we need someone to come alongside of us and call those things out in a loving, kind way that we open our hearts and our minds to and say, I give you permission, I give you influence and access into my life, that I trust you, that you love me enough, that you want the best for me and what's good for me, 
and you're only going to come alongside me and, and lovingly challenge me to address certain issues that I've been dealing with that I know are not godly or not biblical and are immature in my walk and my faith with God. Father, I pray for us today. I pray for men and women right now who are struggling with issues, who are struggling with submission, who are struggling with hiding and isolating things in their life, thinking they will be fixed if they do. That you would give them the courage to submit to you and your spirit this morning. You give them the courage to go find someone. And maybe they have the courage to, to walk outside or to call somebody as soon as we're done or find somebody in this moment and say, look, I need you. I have to have you. God put you in my life for this season and for this very reason. And I need you to work along with the Spirit to help those things change and transform so that I can walk just like my dad. Father, give us the courage to do so in Christ's name. Amen.